Hello and welcome to The Conscious Capitalists, hosted by two of the co-founders of the Conscious Capitalism movement and co-authors of the Conscious Capitalism Field Guide from Harvard Business Press, Raj Sisodia and Timothy Henry. Each week, this podcast covers current events and business news and Raj and Timothy's latest thinking on what it takes to build a conscious business. For more information and notes from the show, go to www.theconsciouscapitalists.com. And now, Raj and Timothy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 32 of The Conscious Capitalists with myself, Timothy Henry, and my partner in making the world a better place through business, Raj Asodia. Hi, Raj. Hey, Timothy. Good to see you back in London with a fresh haircut. <laughs> yes, London's opening up, and I've got my haircut, and I even went to a swimming pool this week and uh, feeling terribly liberated. <laughs> <laughs> Um, today we have a, a very special and interesting guest. We have Safwan Shah, and uh, we're very lucky to have him with us. Not only is he a recent board member of Conscious Capitalism, but he's also the CEO and the founder of PayActive, which is a public benefit company, a B Corp, for those of you that are tracking these things. And he founded a technology company called Infonox, which was bought by a company that's now known as Global Payments. He's an innovator with mission, purpose, and gets real results. And he's also the author of a recent book, About Time, that calls for businesses to basically embrace the mantle of saving the world. And it was published by Conscious Capitalism uh, Press in 2019. So, Safwan, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me here. Maybe begin a little bit with um, a description of pay active, because that's probably a pretty good place to begin the business that you founded and that you really highlight in your book in terms of the raison d'etre for why that business exists. So, so maybe begin with a little bit about pay active, why you founded it and, and, and what it does. So our audience has a baseline from where we're starting. In hindsight, uh, because hindsight is different. Uh, I think I know the answer uh, because it needed to be done. So now having got hindsight out of the way, um, the actual specific reason, it was at the time of my life, it was that time of my life where I was looking for a specific purpose. And I had uh, been a FinTech person for many years. I had sold a company. I was taking a break, uh, quasi-retired and didn't know what to do. And uh, didn't have an autocomplete button on my sort of like a phone on my life. So I had to complete the story. And uh, this uh, 2009, 10 had just happened, which meant that lines at food banks and millions of people living uh, paycheck to paycheck and so on. The data was just all over the news and media. And I kept asking the question to myself that why is the richest country in the world? Why is this richest country in the world have a kind of a quasi third belly, third world in its belly. It, it just stunned me that you know, this is the world's richest country. What is going on? What happened? And one thing led to another. And I actually think um, was the first one to find this uh, blind spot around how wages move. And that was the genesis of pay active that why is there a two week pay cycle? when everything else is real time and pay active as the word suggests, pay active, 
I thought that let's go to businesses and see if there is a way to make money move faster as it works as it moves from an employer's bank account to an employee's bank account and what goodness can come out of it if mm. money moves faster to less rich people they spend it mm. they eat it they transport they do those things so that was the genesis yeah and one thing led to another and it was a it was a big idea i didn't know it at that time it was just something to keep myself busy and remain purposeful and now it's become a category yeah it's become an interesting category in a sense the whole notion of financial wellness benefits in a way isn't it that that's really what what you're now starting to get into which is how do i help the financial well-being of those people that are most vulnerable uh, in our society so say me say a little bit more about that what that means to you that idea of financial wellness or financial well-being so i think um, to me the meaning of financial wellness uh, took a long time uh, to really uh, understand i never understood the term so in the last 2 3 years i spent a lot of time trying to dissect this term and having been you know being an engineer and uh, thinking a little more analytically than you know other people do i wanted to understand what does financial wellness really mean so i went to every kind of research that's out there that i could get my hands on that does it mean um, budgeting does it mean savings does it mean having money to retire and i kept asking this question because we use this term so often and perhaps loosely and the biggest discovery for me was that i think the word is misused and we are looking for something or talking about something which is not even not even an aspiration for a lot of people because they are struggling for livelihood and that led to this whole new sort of thinking that i want to and i've never really shared it in words that we actually go from a journey of struggling for livelihood making ends meet once we are able to get food fuel a car various types of insurances a rent payment it's so those are livelihood needs and then only can we aspire for financial wellness which means growing so if you had to put it in very simple words most people struggle for liquidity yeah. cash in their hand and financial wellness is not even what are you talking about so if you go to the genesis of the term and the word Yeah. which make them as a surprise to a lot of people it came from insurance companies because mm. they wanted to sell long term savings products mm. in a society in a country where people have no savings or didn't have for a long time and still there is a big struggle it so that is why i've kind of started thinking of financial wellness in a slightly different way livelihood first financial wellness second so when yeah. businesses say we want to give financial wellness i always have this conversation with them what does it mean to you so uh, tim it's like a catch all these days but i yeah. think we should parse it it means different things to different people yeah yeah no i love that i think that one of the statistics in your book that 57% of americans 57% almost 2/3 of americans have less than $1000 in savings and another remarkable statistic don't let's not forget 2/3 of americans are hourly workers 
and their hourly wages fluctuate month to month, depending on how many days in a month, etc. So when we start to get into this discussion of, I think you called it liquidity versus compounding, <laughs> you know, the wellness is about how do we compound, how do we save money for retirement and make sure you're, you're well. And I love your focus on livelihood and how do we help support those frontline workers who are right on that edge. So say a little bit more about, about how that then starts to become active in pay active in terms of the offerings that now you offer to businesses. So, so it's, it's a framing thing, right? Once you frame it as a struggle for livelihood, right? And if you say that liquidity is the need for those who, seek, who are trying to survive and uh, compounding is the joy that enjoyed by those that, are, that thrive, so if this was the, if you separated the two out, then mm. now financial wellness gains a meaning. Those who are trying to survive, financial wellness means this, this, and this. Those who are trying to thrive, financial wellness means this, this, and this. So that's one way to look at it. Yeah. If the, in the context of pay active, my own journey is of a journey of understanding because I could not lean on a body of work and knowledge and universities doing studies and some published data that this is what is going on, right? This is all happening at real time, runtime. Mm. So for me, it was really learning from users, mm. talking to people. So when we started this idea of not going to consumers, but going to the businesses, that was a major leap. That was the first big move mm. that why would you make a business which would go to businesses when it's so much easier to go to consumers, right? You can consumers, one person decides in a moment of emotional, whatever moment they can decide behaviorally, oh, I'll buy this. But you go to a business, now you've got people around a conference room table, should we take it, not take it, it's done by consensus. Mm -hmm. So we went to businesses and we said to them that as you use the statistic that two thirds of your workers are living paycheck to paycheck, the data is clear. They are also paid by the hour. So they work one hour, they earn some money, they work another hour, earn, and they're on a clock, they clock in, clock out. They are going outside your place of business and borrowing money. And it is at a high cost and high risk to them. And it changes their ability to work, ability to engage with you, and ability to perform at a higher quality of service, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think as a business, you could let me pay them whatever they've earned in real time. Businesses react to interesting idea, but yeah, no way. I mean, we're not going to put up the money to pay them any faster. We pay them every two weeks. And it, there was always this sort of getting paid is a privilege kind of a thing. And that usually annoyed the hell out of me <laughs> because I always thought hmm. that the loan was given by the employee to the employer, not the other way around. Right. So, but there are amazing businesses in America, amazing businesses, amazing leaders. When you talk to them and when they understand, mm. the first reaction that would come is, oh, my goodness, this is a blind spot. I've never thought about it. Are mm. you telling me that I'm taking a loan from my employees? I said, yeah, it seems like it, right, structurally. So they said, okay, I'm giving you all my time and attendance data of all my employees. You read it with your software, technology, whatever. And whatever money they've earned at any point of time, you can give that to them and I will reimburse you when I do payroll. So Tim, in a very simple way, mm. we took, we assumed the pay cycle yep. 
we got paid every two weeks or do get paid every two weeks if it's a bi-weekly pay cycle the worker the employee gets paid in real time and there is no lending involved mm. we are a payments company beautiful so this beautiful. is how i could think that, you know i think this was the big thing going to businesses and yeah. saying businesses should be partners in this and the fact that businesses became partners in this yeah uh, that to me is a tribute to businesses and leaders well it also interrupts the ecosystem that you describe in the book of the predator lenders and the 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 predators that are just on the edge of those people who are on the edge in charging fees and charging absorbent uh, interest rates for short-term loans, etc., and that there's this whole industry that's evolved <laughs> based on the need these people have to access financial resources in the short term because they don't have a lot of backstops, and that creates enormous friction for them to get out of that cycle of sort of negativity. Don't have enough, live paycheck to paycheck, have to pay off the quote unquote predators that are charging these extra fees and there's an opportunity for the business to intermediate and sort of say hey listen we can help you and and i think that's just a brilliant brilliant approach yeah i think we we have kind of a gotcha system right where all these landmines or traps laying everywhere and it's so easy to get ensnared in, in one or more of those traps especially if you have no buffer zone and very hard to get out of that once you're in you're pretty much trapped right it's very very hard so this is such an, an incredible service i remember safwan when you spoke at our conference and you had people in tears on multiple occasions and a couple of phrases that you used that really stuck with me one was you were addressing a room full of ceos and you told them you do not need to be borrowing from your poorest employees and when you put it that way it's like oh my god you know there's a kind of healthy shame in a way that uh, that can get awakened when we when somebody shines a light into a blind spot and there's also a quote that you use from the bible uh, from deuteronomy i think if you could deuteronomy 24 15 3000 years old uh, yeah. more than 3000 years old pay them their wages before the sun sets because they are poor mm. yeah and it was uh, and, and raj thank you for you know remembering that in your kind words but uh, it was it was a journey right for me to convince myself that how could i who was a technical engineering uh, you know that type of mindset why am i getting into a world which i a i don't understand i don't have any experience in but on an emotional level isn't everything ultimately a human thing and when you bring humanity in your work to me it was so obvious when i dissected this that what am i doing am i kind of now a lender mm. what have i got myself into because i'm trying to solve a problem do good in life and i had to build this whole you know company technology etc to do that one of the things that came in is, is this a good thing so i said let's go to everything that i have been trained as the pillars of you know body of knowledge i went to science mm. and i went to math i went to economics i went to psychology i went to um history warring history how did the army of alexander and chinggis khan grow hmm. turns out most armies paid their soldiers after the war was won these leaders decided to create a <clears throat> ecosystem 
where they could be well fed even before the war so that was a big move and uh, you go to royalty royalty in england i'll use an example from england tim mm-hmm. royalty buys no maybe that's a bad word royalty gets loyalty mm. by you know every few decades they do a jubilee in england in in in, in royal kingdoms there used to be a jubilee and most people don't know the meaning of the word jubilee is forgiveness of debt that's right on so your 50th anniversary the, jubilee your 50th exactly, birthday is an important it's one <laughs> it's, it means forgiveness of debt yeah in german schuld means shame and it's the word used for debt mm. so we have a we have exemplars in in math which was fascinating for me the realization that wages have three variables how much which is level how which is structure and when which is timing mm. how much and how is well understood but their political debates minimum wage is a how or level debate yeah. structure is also a political debate taxes and so on but when is not a political debate it is entirely timing is entirely in the hands of um, the employer and that goes back to math newton brought time into an equation mm. because of newton and calculus well leibniz would argue that because of newton and calculus we have yeah. time in an equation and now we've brought time into the equation of payroll so it's these are all i mean i can give you so many examples I've yeah yeah so much time with this problem well But, I, you know, oh, i think the uh, the source of suffering you know i mean as you know you are featured in the healing organization Uh, as one of the stories and um, when i started becoming aware of your work and all the wonderful research that you've done uh, to um, uh, sort of dimensionalize this problem and how many people you know those numbers were new to me when i heard them from you as to how many people live paycheck to paycheck how many people are hourly and then the consequences of that so when you have that level of financial uncertainty and stress that you are living with constantly not only does it impact your uh your engagement and your you know ability to be creative and all of that i mean it curtails that dramatically uh but also it then leads to all kinds of other ailments right the connection between financial stress and and then physical and emotional and psychological uh conditions is enormous so if you look at the the healthcare consequences of that you know they are huge and so there's just like you know it's all it's all tied in tied in together indeed indeed i mean they have typically studies use words like self efficacy mm. self esteem uh, what happens to a you know father parent when they can't uh, deal take care of small issues with their children and so on and so forth it it just it's a cascade it's a, it's it's very sensitive dependence on initial conditions so to say yeah. and if you if you get into that spiral it alters and changes your life uh, in, in in many ways and there's But a you, sense of shame i think you talk about and that people almost start to believe they deserve it like they you know this is all they are worthy of right so it's like it, it affects their sense of self in a deep way as well hmm. yeah you know raj you kind of brought me to uh, thinking about some things and when you started talking you said suffering and i don't know if you know that 
but in one of your uh, books or your conversations, you kind of said that, and I remember it distinctly because I remember it like a very vivid um, thing. You said suffering is something we cannot um, end, but what we can end is needless suffering. When you said that, to me, it was in a way, you know, it's every purpose, like every relationship needs a reaffirmation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obsessive, compulsive people like myself who believe in something and work very hard to achieve it, we need that fuel sometimes. Mm. And I, in those two words, needless suffering, yeah. I got the fuel that my purpose in life now is not, I can't end suffering, right? I can draw inspiration from the Victor Frankls of the world, but I can't end suffering, yeah. but I can end needless suffering and every CEO and every human being can end it. And that's a good cause. That's a good flag to carry. Mm-hmm. So that was a big inflection point. Now coming to the other point, how it impacts people, shame and so forth. I mean, there's no end to it. I'll tell you an incident. And um, so I was in Goodwill Silicon Valley and uh, we had decided that they were one of the early adopters. An amazing CEO was there and he had said that I'll give this service to my employees and Goodwill Silicon Valley is a big, uh, you know, they have warehouses where they clean clothes, which they've got from families, you know, hand-me-downs and so on. And then they put them in their stores. They do amazing work. So there was a whole infrastructure built around it. And we were interviewing a few of their users because New York Times or somebody had decided to write an article about us. It was that moment for a little company that we are going to get recognized. And I'm standing there and a couple of my team members and we are filming this individual who was working there. Remember her name, I won't use it. And this interviewer asked her, who was making the video, that what does pay active mean to you? Basically, like what does it mean to get $50 or $100 that are stuck in the system at the right time? Mm. And uh, I was standing there with my, and I was filming it with my camera. And um, she said, it gives me room for dreams. Mm. I was instead, I mean, I was just devastated for that moment. Mm. That who the hell am I? to have this power that the $100 that you've earned, it is your rightful due. Call it scripture, science, economics, math, everything. It's your right due. That for getting it on time or getting it when you need it, I'll tie it back to needless suffering. How much needless suffering are we causing? So let's not even go into what it causes. Shame is just one example of it. Each one of us at some point in our life have had that fear of money running out. Each one of us. It's just that we don't remember it in that way because we've gone into denial. But imagine millions of people. The father who can't bring a child uh, French fries with food because she wants to have them. Millions of people. This is America for, and this is the world. But in America, it shouldn't happen. <laughs> so anyway, I, 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 no, no. I think, I think, I think what what's also fascinating is that you've not only addressed the time issue, but you're also expanding it into helping people, in a sense, start to learn financial literacy. Because in many ways, there's a strong correlation between the level of financial literacy and people's ability to function in the world. There was, it's just strange that I, I, my daughter graduated from Wharton. So I get this Wharton magazine electronically or something. And just this week, 
there was this article that they were sending us from Penn Today about this researcher who comes back and says, financial literacy for white women in America is, on, on the way they were scoring it, only 21% of women were financially literate. When you look at African-American women, it drops to 9% and for Latinos, 13%. So part of the whole challenge is not only getting them the money, but also helping them understand how to budget, how to save, and, and these kinds of things. And um, say a little bit more about how you're expanding a little into that space with the app and the way you're approaching it so that it's, it's really taking a, a more surround approach to, the, to people and not just saying, here's the money, but hey, here's some other things that you might need to help create um, yeah. that step ladder to get them into a place where they'll be um, a little yeah, bit so, more so The good safe. news is that uh, when we, when I say we are a payments company, so the money they're getting is already theirs. So, but, and why they're getting it. So we track few things. So they can get half of what they've earned. So that's 50%. So that's an inbuilt card rail. That's a big one. Secondly, there's no cost to accessing the money. Mm. It is actually free. Our service is free because they load it on a Visa card that we provide, which is free also. So we make money when they spend it. So loading money on the card and many times. So what it does is it's a very interesting behavioral thing. If you charge somebody $5 to take money out of an ATM versus another ATM where it's free, turns out you take the most amount when you're paying the fee and you take the least amount when you're not paying a fee and you can use it as many times. It's like a you know, refrigerator yeah, yeah. food and you can snack as many times after a point you'll stop snacking. Mm. <laughs> and you'll say, this is my food, I can eat it anytime. So you'll right size it, right time it. Mm. So this kind of guardrail is built in our app because there's no fee, they right size it, right time it. Secondly, we pay their bills for free. We give them little prompts and nudges, you know, a lot of mm. behavioral stuff without, you know, using words like AI and machine learning and all that. It's very straightforward. Yep. I all, But I also, I'm not sure that I've done my... Um, I'm going to do a lot of thinking around financial literacy more because I think it has failed miserably. Mm. And financial literacy is, um, I like data and I look at data, but the world I see is they are not financially illiterate. Mm. One other thing that I would, you know, I'll be given an opinion. I rarely give opinions. I shouldn't give opinions, but I'll give an opinion. Mm. Financial wellness and financial literacy are two words that need to be parsed and understood much better. They're being used and uh, the marketeers, they're being used uh, in a variety of contexts in which many things don't apply. To say that a person who makes $12 an hour mm. is financially illiterate mm. speaks volumes of how we think about these things. There is mm. no, in my world, mm. there is no judging a human being. Mm. They are saving money. They are trying to make ends meet yeah. as a society. We need to figure out how they can earn more money. Mm. Not tell that you with the smallest orange squeeze the same amount of juice mm. that somebody can squeeze out of a big orange. I didn't yeah. use lemons for a reason, but oranges. Mm. <laughs> they are making lemonade out of lemons. Yeah. And we sit here 
if we want to really do something, then we need to also ask the question, where are the guardrails on credit cards? Hmm. Ever thought about putting some guardrails? Would Visa allow it? Hmm. I'm a payments guy, right? I can show you data that if I was buying gas, yeah. and if I used a credit card, I'll pay 25%, I would buy 25% more gas. Average ticket, let's say, would be $30. If I was using a debit card, I would use $24. If I was paying in cash, I would be doing $19. Hmm. Why? When it's a credit card, we spend more, it's easier. Where are the guardrails? When an industry makes money by maximizing the debt, let's talk about that too. So I, I'm, I'm saying that these are big, big terms. Yeah. I'm not convinced by what has been offered because we have to change the system. We have to reimagine it. Mm. When yeah. it comes to half the, half the working population. Yeah. Not the one size doesn't fit all. Financial mm. literacy also needs to be dissected. Yeah. And Safan, if I think about another aspect of this same issue uh, where people are getting paid <clears throat> after they have done the work, if you look at uh, small businesses and suppliers to most companies, they're typically getting paid 60, 90, 120 days after they have delivered their service or their goods, right? And they in turn have their own employees and they've got their own bills to pay. And, and I, But I find the majority of large companies uh, don't even think about that and they take advantage of that. They get paid by the customer the minute they sell the product like retailers, right? But then meanwhile, they've got another 90 days or whatever number of days to pay their suppliers. And it just feels to me that this ethos, this framing of this question, you know, especially in an era of cheap money where interest rates are so low, that you're causing even more unnecessary suffering. I mean, it's it's never acceptable. But when, when the actual cost of doing the right thing is even lower than it historically has been, you know, that just feels to me like another area. And it's probably outside it know, isn't. the market it isn't in which you're right. playing. <laughs> I mean, it isn't, right? Let's take, let's take, let's get logical for a moment. Use pure, you know, logic. And I use this sort of simple example in a, recently last year, I did a, a TED talk in an empty auditorium actually, um, where I asked this question that if landlords are paid in advance, vendors are paid upon delivery or with terms, customers pay you instantly. Why are workers made two weeks? We are made to wait two weeks. And like take the example of Starbucks, if I walk into Starbucks or Apple store right now and say, hey, thank you very much. I'll pay you in two weeks for the computer. How would you like it? But that's how you're paid as an employee. So that, you know, I, I did that actually. And the person laughed at me and says, go away. So <laughs> if we look at these things, there are industries built on arbitrage around mm. time. Okay. Banking industry is one of them. Lending in, it's arbitrage around time. In this, I go back to a term that I used earlier, which is needless suffering. If you are made aware that your payment practices are leading to this consequence, you should do something about it. Just like we as a society elevated ourselves when we talked about sustainability. Large corporations, when they were made aware of the fact that their produce and their product 
led to, you know, dumping and uh, clogging of oceans and climate change. They said, oh, my goodness, I want to get into sustainability. Mm. And they started changing their practices. Nike changed the way that they manufactured the shoes and so on and so on and so on. It is a question of elevating the dialogue and bringing that knowledge to corporations. When I brought this knowledge to CEOs that do you ever wonder as you drive to your office, why are there more payday lenders on this street? Oh, I never thought of it. I'm the largest employer. Yes, payday lending is a function of payroll. Ah, got it. Wow, fix it. Now we, what Raj said, now we go to CEOs of companies and businesses and say to them, the downstream effect is this. They will do something immediately. But we don't do enough of that thinking. I think it, it is getting elevated. If I, you know, if I, there's a legacy that I would like, that legacy would be this thinking should take universities and everybody should think about it. Yeah. There are initial conditions and there's subsequent impact. Yeah. Connect the dots. Well, it, it then leads to the, to the sort of a, a quasi-societal question in some ways for many businesses. I mean, at one level, it's the whole discussion around living wages. You know, like, should we be paying living wages? And if you're not paying living wages, you know, back to the point of shame and, and what are you thinking? Um, and then there's the other question of really good jobs. You know, how are we creating good jobs where, you know, for our frontline workers, they're getting the training, they're getting career paths that, um, that help them contribute more to the business and at the same time elevate themselves in terms of one of those variables, which is the size of the wage that they're getting to start with. And, and I'm curious, you know, how do you internalize that within PayActive? I mean, what are some of the practices that you put in place that help you, in, you know, be an exemplar of that? I mean, we can never do enough. Uh, we can, no one can do enough about it because it's so hard to um, know everything that people are going through. But for a role of a business to me is also to understand the, you know, the situation, there should be situational awareness, so to say, about people that work within the business. But coming back to this um, point of living wage, so you know, this, MIT does that study and the living wage comes out of it. I've been fascinated by this um, mm. topic and more so in America now because we talk about it. So I have a couple of opinions on it, none pleasant. Mm. Uh, so the first opinion is, the, the decision of how much a person should be paid is usually a function of uh, living wages, how much they need to get paid in some ways that for, for them to live a decent life. So I use the word livelihood for a reason, mm. Mm. because living wage is tied to livelihood. Now, in order to make your life and to me, livelihood, I then studied the user base that we have. And I asked the question, what does livelihood mean to them? And I broke it down to four or five different things. Food, mm. fuel, because we didn't invest in a transportation system in this country. That's a big cost. Food, fuel, auto. Biggest possession of most people is a car. Mm. And they use that for title loans as well as to get from place A to place B and so on. 
food fuel auto shelter how much do you pay for rent insurances which i find fascinating there's a whole industry of insurances all the way from large to small types of insurances various like car insurance home insurance renter insurance <laughs> everything insurance is that beautiful thing right after the purchase there'll be a question do you want to buy the insurance on this too i mean i'm supposed to buy an insurance at best buy for everything even for a usb drive so insurances so i asked the question they protect you so food fuel auto shelter so this livelihood understanding has to be made very clear in america that a living wage is needed because people are going hungry we sometimes use words without their real emotion underneath it yeah. so that's that's why i say living wages you see behind me live grow connect give live is today grow is tomorrow connect is earn more and then you get in a position to give mm. it's not it doesn't say take so the reason i'm saying all this to you is the living wages of great interest to me i think you know, another opinion mm. many businesses are structured without this understanding that if the wages were increased even 20% this business would no longer be viable mm. i think there are many businesses in america that is why there's always a outcry an outcry when wages are wages should be decided based on need like yes basic and other but i i feel that um we must find every which way to squeeze the most out of what people are paid and if that is not enough mm. we need to increase wages i ran into an amazing article all places in fast company in september it was citing um a re some research done at rand so i said mm. okay i'll better go to the research mm. so i go to the rand research and they came out with an amazing little chart and uh, that chart said that if pace of growth had been the same from 1975 to 2019 what would the wages have been as they would have as they grew from 1945 to 1975 median wage in the us median wage right this is yeah. a very important point median wage is 5253000 yeah. that means half of american well how do america earns less than 52000 dollars a year that's 4000 dollars a month that's 2000 dollars a week yeah wow. and that is no more than 18 dollars an hour <laughs> or 20 dollars an hour so i said what would the wages be if they had the growth had been the same for the bottom 50% what was the median wage of united states going to be if mm. the pace of growth until 1975 had been there because automation came in and all that you know what it would have been Ninety-two thousand dollars a year mm. is that the living wage? Mm. So, some people would argue this is a great sort of reverse the system. The rich have taken money from the poor. That some would argue it that, that way. Others would argue that we missed the we missed something. So, this living wage debate, I think, needs to be parsed, yeah. dissected. Yeah. and made into a real issue of food and fuel and auto. Well, you know, it's interesting when you get into global companies. I have a global client in the retail business and 
you know, they've made us a commitment to a living wage. And now, you know, for them, it's different between a minimum wage and a living wage. So they think they're already, you know, changing the dialogue. But it's a really interesting question, you know, like, what is that, you know, living wage or livelihood wage in Malaysia or Indonesia versus the U.S. versus Germany versus Dubai? And so as a global level, to try to start to deal with this issue, many companies are having to start to at least probe and ask that question of like, well, if it can't be the same in every country, we've got to set some kind of standard for what it means. And then we've got to look at each country and sort of say, what is the livelihood level that's needed in these different geographies? And, and that creates a huge level of complexity for a global company that, that wants to try to do these things. Nonetheless, they're doing it, but it really created some deep thinking that had to go on yeah, around how they defined it. Is, the question I think to ask is that what is the role of business? Mm. That is one of my goals as a business or as a business leader to make the world better or not. And how much am I willing to make that a priority for me? So I think it goes to the heart of the, because what we have not been able to truly dissect, decipher or understand, where do we stand on this debate on the role of the business in society? You and Raj in the conscious capitalism community said the roles of business is to build better communities. I say it is to create jobs, improve lives and build strong communities too. But is that the role of business that everybody understands it to be? Does Wall Street see it that way? Because yeah. I think businesses have the answer to most things. But first, let's celebrate their role. Let's understand their role. Let's celebrate it. And then let them in some ways fix it also. <laughs> but inspire well, you know, I, them to lead. I think on the, on the living wage issue, I mean, there are companies like Unilever that have done that for 190 countries. And not everybody needs to then reinvent that. I mean, there's the analysis and the research has been done. So there are some pretty, um, and, and it's a pretty generous definition of what is what does it mean to have a living wage. Uh, and I think beyond that, you know, constraints lead to creativity. So when we put certain kinds of constraints, you know, obviously they, you can have too many rules and too much regulation, but certain kinds of constraints, certain kinds of floors, right? You, you raise the floor from what it is to something different. And that will then cause creativity to kick in. And businesses then have to figure out a business model that makes, makes it work uh, in that. If not, then they have a faulty business. You know, it's a business that's predicated on uh, extracting rather than creating value because somebody else is paying the price for your business model if they are not able to live or if they're not able to uh, you know, take care of their basic, basic needs. Uh, by by doing so, so I and I do think you know, there are lots of comparisons. Like then I saw one with Denmark recently, right? Denmark McDonald's versus a McDonald's here, and the Big Mac is priced roughly the same, maybe five percent more in Denmark, but the employees are paid on average twenty four dollars uh, an hour, right? Now there might be other factors like healthcare becomes a responsibility of many businesses here, and other countries don't have to deal with that. But I think there are ways. Uh, when you start paying people better, your turnover goes down. Instead of 130% a year, you might be down to 30% a year, and that's a huge cost saving. 
right? There are productivity gains. That's the whole work of the Good Jobs Institute. So, so there are lots of ways in which to make that work and not have it be a trade-off and not have to squeeze employees, right, in order to, uh, to make the business viable. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of think, yes, these are all wonderful examples. In this day and age, in this modern society, I think there are forces that are levers in, 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 that are available to, uh, to society at large. For instance, if we can define the role of businesses to make a better community, and if it turns out at a certain business, the number the employees are suffering for some reason, there should be a benchmark. Just like a hospital has a benchmark of how many people are recovering, how many people are, mm. how long it takes, there is a benchmark around humanity and on people. Mm. And that benchmark should be made and instituted. You know, another thing that is another one of those Raj moments that I had when he says <laughs> it's not human resource, human beings are a source. Mm. To me, the, these things matter because human beings are the source, but how are we, what are we doing about the source? We talk about training people, but if businesses can train people, retrain people, move them up and down and sideways and broader skills. So I think if we had a metric around businesses around, like if there's a great business, let's say some business that we all love, mm. uh, turns out that they were caught in some activity which led to you know, oil spills. We get all angry and up in arms and all that. And we say, we got yeah. this and all that. But when we say that, oh, this business is very harsh on their employees, or maybe in a, we have to find the right way to do it with, because it shouldn't be vindictive and so on and used as a tool to hurt. If we could come and measure the employees of this business are the happiest. There's a survey that is done every year of all businesses in Silicon Valley mm. or all businesses that have hourly workers. Show me that study. I mean, the businesses would love to put that badge of honor. Let's do that. Let's fix it that way, mm. like we did with sustainability and so forth. That was about saving the planet. This is about saving humanity. Let's save both of them mm. and do it with metrics. Mm. Well, I you know I think there's a couple of things that have come up for me, and you've talked about blind spots. I think that's a good uh, metaphor to use. And what are, this is one blind spot that you have identified a huge one, but there are many I think out there that we don't see until somebody shows them to us. So we need to shine a light. Uh, so there are blind spots, and then there are cul-de-sacs, <laughs> dead ends, right? So you you get hired into this job, and you're hired at this wage, and there's pretty much that's what you're going to do for the next thirty years unless you you figure out something on your own. And can we eliminate those dead ends because we kind of create these? I mean, I use the phrase caste system coming from India, that there are people who are kind of locked into certain low-level jobs and they, you know, there's no, there's, they're trapped and it's really very difficult for them to get out of that, right? So how do we end that caste? And every company has it. Every single company has, almost every company, has kind of the salaried, you know, full-time, uh, college-educated professionals. And then you've got the hourly workers doing most of the actual work. And, and life is so different. The same company, supposedly the same culture, but not really. Right? So how do we not have cul-de-sacs and how do we not have blind spots and how do we not have stupid rules and policies and norms and procedures that actually cause suffering? And I think that's part of what a suffering... I, think, uh, uh, I don't know the answer to this question, but if I had to dwell on an answer because you pose a great question, blind spots and cul-de-sacs. Um, I think it's about inspiration. Again, it goes back to what is my, well, why am I here? 
and am I underachieving or overachieving or can I achieve do more? I think it, it, it comes from ins- being inspired. You know, when societies become vibrant and change, it bec- because somebody inspired them, whether it's at a family level or community level or country level or national level, a sports person. It's about inspiration, right? Millions of people play a certain sports because they love Michael Jordan or Tiger Woods or something like that. It's about inspiration, I think. Mm. I think it's about, ins- we have to inspire people Companies have to be places of inspiration. Even, you know, as as a young person, all of us must have imagined I'd work in this company. My dream was to work for Imagineering. (laughs) I got in a car after my PhD and I drove all the way to Silicon Valley. My dream was to work for Paul Allen, no, for Imagineering Disney. I wanted to be an Imagineer. I didn't get in. But that was my dream. They inspired me. Mm. I can imagine a young person walking in the halls of a large company or in a big factory and saying, you know, they're making uh, whatever, some little part. But that inspiration, companies should be places of inspiration. Just like colleges and universities are. And businesses are places of inspiration. And that is where we should reward them. You see, I go back to businesses. I do not see there's any any other solution in the world. It is businesses. They are the universities. Well, you know, Bob Chapman talks about that, right? That he was, one of his awakenings was in a church where the pastor gave this wonderful sermon every Sunday and the entire congregation was inspired and lifted up in one hour to to be better human beings. And one of those Sundays, Bob heard that and the thought uh, came to him that, uh, you know, I've got people for 40 hours a week and this preacher only has us for one hour. And yet he's able to uplift us. What are we doing to inspire people? And from that day on, that became part of what they're trying to create, a workplace that actually lifts you up and inspires you. Because then, then, you know, human beings being the source, that there's no limit actually to our creativity and our ingenuity. We can, we can do miraculous things, right? But not, not, we don't do that unless we're inspired. And I think part of that is a company that is doing good in the world, which is what you're doing. So all of your employees inherently have that higher purpose. But beyond that, in, in individual scope to actually share their gifts and share their perspectives and make a difference within that higher purpose. So I think all of that will then lead to even a compounding uh, positive impact in the world. You know, it's fascinating. What what we're sort of saying, in essence, is that, you know, businesses need to be more human, that they have to be more places where our full humanity is, and we're there for humans, and not there just for profit. Now, I mean, the organism has to behave like an organism. Exactly. Don't be an organization, be an organism. <laughs> yeah. And, and so I, I'm interested, Safwan, when you go around and talk to people, you know, obviously Raj and I have been doing this for 12, 13 years as part of conscious capitalism, but you've got sort of fresh eyes in a way. And I'm curious, when you go out and talk to other CEOs and you have this conversation, what's their reaction to your point of, you know, are you caring for your people? Are you inspiring your people? You know, what do you see as the role of business? What, what do you hear as the pushback? What do you hear as the quote unquote counterpoint to that? There's usually never any objection. 
they, they agree. Uh, they generally agree. And they say that we lack tools. Mm. And uh, I think my, that is why I feel there is a need for businesses to which conscious capitalism is doing, creating exemplars and uh, conversations that, uh, so it's like, like what tools could be uh, products like our company does uh, fair, uh, not, you know, trying to extract value, but giving value, which is commensurate to what uh, the need and uh, how it's priced. I think there is a, I have never seen pushback. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be, uh, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be a company if there was pushback to an idea which was as alien as what we decided to do. Mm. Beautiful. The, the, I believe that businesses are interested for a variety of reasons. And I use this, yeah. sometimes I've used it and sometimes it has caused, uh, it's, it's not a provocative comment, but I'll use it anyway. I believe that um, America has 5 million businesses and not 50 states. Mm. Businesses don't have egos. Businesses don't have uh, borders. Businesses live and die on the altar of the needs of their users and their customer satisfaction. Businesses are the most honest representation of society. Mm. Businesses are punished for the slightest mistake that they make. Mm. The new world, social media, etc. has made it more so. Businesses have no religion, no border, no ego technically. Mm. So now, having said that, they are levers that we could use much better. Empower them, measure them, judge them, um, you know, rank them, all those things you can do. Mm. Make exemplars of business. And there are great businesses in this country, in this yeah. world, Unilever example, so many others, hundreds of years. Great well, businesses. Well, you know, it raises a really interesting issue. I mean, this past weekend, you had a hundred big business CEOs getting together on Zoom and saying voter rights are important, that a fundamental part of a democracy is ensuring as large a franchise as possible. And there's been some blowback on that. You know, that's, uh, you know, Raj, you know, you and I were talking earlier about the Wall Street Journal coming out this week and, uh, and sort of saying, oh, this is big businesses. They don't care about capitalism. They're only in it for themselves. They only care about their employees and their customers. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, they only care about their employees and their customers. What are they thinking? Um, a great example, right? This is exactly what I'm saying. Do not worry about the blowback for now. Yeah. Just celebrate the fact that these hundred leaders came together on a cause. And mm-hmm. what was it? It was a, it was a, you know, it was a sensitive issue. Yes. Businesses have never spoken on sensitive issues because they've been scared to get the backlash. Yes. There is nothing to be worried about if there's blowback. But let's celebrate the fact that these hundred people came together. And next time there are 125, 150, and maybe the cause will be environment, cause would be people, cause would be wages. Can you imagine what any politician would be able to do mm. if 2,000 business leaders said wages would, should be living wages? Too? Yeah. Well, I, I love that because, you know, there's this sort of subtext in America that somehow business is about business and not about politics. And so part of the discussion is, well, oh, you know, they're playing into one party's point of view, into one party's advantage, and mm, be careful. 
And yet there's this other argument that says maybe this is a tipping point. This is a point where businesses are standing up and saying we are part of society. And if we're going to be credible with our people around diversity and inclusion programs, then we better damn well be sure <laughs> that the political landscape is equally committed to diversity and inclusion of everybody in, in, and getting as many people to vote as possible rather than being perceived as setting up barriers to that. So, you know, I'm hopeful that this is actually a positive sign that we're at a tipping point where businesses are willing to edge out there a little bit and take a position on something that matters to their people and to their customers. Yeah, I'm an eternal optimist. I believe business, it's not even a tipping point. I think the tipping point came sometimes earlier. This is the big, we are seeing the first signs mm. of it. And in the next two decades, we will see the role of business to be redefined, measured differently. So Safan, we are always curious about what makes a conscious capitalist leader who they are and uh, you know the formative experiences. I know you're one of the world's uh, greatest uh, cricket fans. You and I could talk for hours about our memories about cricket. Uh, but beyond that, would you say there were things in your uh, formative years, parental influences that might have given you a hint that this is the kind of path that you would eventually end up being on? I come from a family of engineers. My father was an electrical engineer. My grandfather, my maternal side was an electrical engineer. My uncles are engineers. So I thought I'd be an engineer. So it did not give me any indication. But if an engineer's job is to build, an engineer's job is to make the world better, then I was trained all my life to do this. Because I believe that I build. That's what I was trained to do for my formative years. And you have to build things. You have to do things better. And um, what I do today, I always see it that way. Uh, the second thing is, I think I always thought that our job is to make leave the world better than we found it. And I just subscribe to it. And then the inspiring influences through my life. So I don't say there's anything specific, but I do what I've done all my life. And what about your mother's influence? Was there huge influence? Yeah. Um, she uh, grew up in England and uh, was the daughter of a diplomat. So she spoke English in the English accent. And she moved to Pakistan, married my father, who was, uh, for most people, it, he, he was half from the northern side of Pakistan, the border of you know, Peshawar and Afghanistan. And the other mother's side, he was South Indian, southern tip of India. So he had this amazing, what I call the scholar-warrior gene. Mm. <laughs> so on the one side, he taught, in, he taught in math, but with a sword in his hand. So, mm. so, so there's a big influence. But my mother's influence was good and great because she, when she kind of thought about things or talked about things, she would talk about you know, Shakespeare and uh, Jane Austen. And it was a great influence in terms of knowledge, seeking knowledge. And uh, I didn't have a liberal arts background or education, but my mother was my liberal arts uh, university. She opened me up to Byron and poetry and Shakespeare and made me think of a lot of things. And even that song, which is in a documentary, 16 Tons. Hmm. Since she grew up in England, she, I actually think she was there at the 1953 coronation of the Queen. So... So that was a big influence, and I'm surprised you asked me, but yes, Raj, mm -hmm. big influence. 
Well, I love that warrior scholar. You know, I come from that Rajput community in India, which is the warrior caste, right? And of course, I'm an academic, so maybe that's something to aspire to. <laughs> Philosopher kings and our warrior, warrior science scholars. I love it. <laughs> so, looking forward, what are some of the things that are on your radar as you look forward that are helping you get out of bed in the morning and getting you excited and pumped up as you look over the next three to five years? That's a great question. In the immediate future, let's say the three to five years, I think I have a very good idea. Mm. The last five, six, seven years, as we've built this business around understanding the needs of the underserved uh, workforce population, you know, the whole pay active story has created a lot of data for us about these, I think, uh, stereotypes or misunderstandings like the word financial wellness or financial literacy and so on. This data is giving us so many ideas of what we can do. And if I dare say, I believe we can make the world better. We finally know Mm. what are the things we need to do, how credit should be structured, Mm. how uh, better services can be created because we were trying to do one size fits all before that. And by going deep into it, it's like we finally got a, um, you know, we did experiments in real time, 2000 businesses use our service and we've learned a lot of stuff. We know so how to save, how to spend, how to spend smartly, how to grow your savings. These are the things. And I think that's what excites me. Wow. Wow. That's great. So you're seeing sort of a restructuring of a lot of our consumer financial offerings exactly. based on data of what really helps people. <laughs> yes, we finally have real data. It's a reimagination. Oh. That the first phase and wave of those companies will now start coming. Well, Safwan, thank you so much for an inspiring example and an inspiring discussion today. Really appreciate your time with us. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you, our listeners, for joining us this week. And whatever channel you're listening on, please don't hesitate to hit that subscription button. And if you liked what you heard here, to pass this on to your friends and colleagues who might also find it interesting. And of course, we always appreciate it if you go over to Apple Podcast and you want to give us a score or leave some comments for us. That's always extremely helpful to us. And you can also go to theconsciouscapitalists.com where you can leave a comment for Raj and I, and we will follow up on that. And finally, I want to thank our producer this week, uh, Carla Viegas, who every week helps us make sure this gets out on time. Thank you, Carla. And Raj, if they want to know more about this wonderful organization called Conscious Capitalism, where can they go to hear more about that? Well, they can go to ConsciousCapitalism.org and learn about uh, chapters and uh, lots of online programming nowadays you can access from anywhere in the world. Uh, and of course, uh, you can read about Safwan's story in The Healing Organization in addition to his own book, uh, It's About Time. Uh, it's been really a pleasure to have you with us today, Safwan. Thank you. Thank you very much.